Good morning. My name is Kevin Newsom. I am the uh, associate pastor of worship and discipleship, and every once in a while, Craig lets me preach a little bit. Uh, if you will, turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21. And as you're doing that, I want to uh, tell you a little bit about what's going on with equipping studies. Uh, there are a couple of equipping studies that uh, there's not been a whole lot of interest in. Um, and so we're going to cancel those. There are a couple of equipping studies that have been a whole lot of interest in and are getting really, really full, really fast. And if you are one of those and you signed up because, we don't want to take away from those, but if you signed up because, eh, there's nothing else I really want to do, we're going to put in a, uh, equip, an equipping study on world religions. So we're going to study world religions, what they believe, and things like that. We'll cover Islam, uh, um, uh, Hinduism, uh, atheism, actually, uh, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses. We'll cover all of those things in this equipping study. I will be leading that. So if, if you haven't signed up or if you signed up for one of these really large classes just because there wasn't anything else you were interested in, this is something you might be interested in. Just know that that's going to be there. I'll make sure the information is available uh, immediately after, after service today. So that'll be there. So the ones we are um, canceling are the Unleashed for the Gospel, which is a video-driven right now media one. And we'll be canceling the Start Here uh, equipping study that uh, I and uh, my wife Deanna were going to lead. So by now you should be in chapter 21 of Revelation. If you're having a hard time finding it, it is the next to last chapter of the entire thing. So it should be pretty easy for you. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? I'm going to begin with verse 1. <coughs> then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself would be with, him, with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he, and he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the totality of Scripture, God, and what you're really just trying to tell us through it all. God, I pray that you would speak to us today, that we will see, that we will see the fullness of the story that you have placed before us, God, and it would become a reality to us, and we'll be able to apply it to our lives and be able to share it with other people, God, and be able to proclaim your name with it. In the name I pray, amen. You may be seated. I enjoy stories. I enjoy watching them. I enjoy reading them. I enjoy creating them. I've studied storytelling for a long time. There's a, and, and I tell you, there's a common misconception that a lot of people have when it comes to stories. Most people believe there are only two primary elements, the plot and the characters. But that's not the complete picture. 
I tend to call the third item simply the story. It confuses a lot of people because I, I, I look at it as three elements, the story, the plot, and the characters. And a lot of people want to call the story something else. So to avoid confusion, just think of it, what, I'm, what I mean as the meaning, the moral, the message, or the point behind the narrative. Plot is what happens. Characters are what uh, are, are characters that the plot happens to. But if there's no why, if there's no meaning, if there's no story, then so what? What's the point? A good story tells something deeper than the plot. The reader should walk away a better person, not just an entertained person. The whole story of the Bible is not that Jesus died on a cross, rose again on the third day, and purchased our salvation with his blood. Now, before you run me out for a heretic, let me explain. Bringing the mission of the gospel of salvation to the world is the primary narrative of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. And Jesus, without a doubt, is the main character that that, that narrative revolves around. The cross, the empty tomb, is the climax of that narrative, but it's a part of the story. It's not the whole story. It's not the whole meaning. It's the plot. It's the effect without the cause. It's the actions without the motive. The whole story is so much richer. It's so much bigger. And it answers the question of why did God want to save us? Why did God send Jesus? This sermon is a month late. And I'm so glad that uh, uh, Craig let me preach it because when, when he preached his Christmas sermon, he told you oh, he'd, been, he'd been thinking about that for months, right? Well, I knew back in March of last year that I was going to be preaching that, this sermon, and I had been thinking on this one for months. And the next time I preached, well, y'all were going to get this sermon one way or another. I was going to preach it. That's a month late. Two weeks before Christmas, I came down with bronchitis which turned into pneumonia, which I am thankfully mostly recovered from. And if I start coughing in the middle, that's why. I saw a doctor who gave me medicine, and still my road to recovery has, has been a long one. I'm six months away from actually uh, my diagnosis of recovery, and, and I still get out of breath. I still cough occasionally. But throughout it all, what I wanted was not simply to rid my body of the sickness. I didn't want to see a doctor. I didn't want to take medicine. I certainly didn't want to spend over a month recovering. What I wanted more than anything was to get back to normal, to return to my regular activities. While I was sick, I couldn't be the husband I was supposed to be. I couldn't function as a father the way I should be. I couldn't, I couldn't serve this church the way I needed to. So what I wanted was to return to my, to my primary responsibilities, to function the, the way I should be functioning. Recognizing the sickness was the first step. Seeing a doctor and receiving the medicine was necessary. Recovery has been a process. All of this served to get me to what I really want, to be back to normal. The story of the Bible is much the same. Sickness entered the world of this sin. 
Without a cure, we have no hope. It's through Jesus, our great physician, that we receive the cure. And once we are cured of the underlying disease of sin, we begin that process of recovery, recovery that takes our, our, the rest of our lives to fully achieve. And in the meantime, we still have to deal with, some, with the effects of the sin that has ravaged us spiritually and physically. But the point, the whole story, is and always has been this. Restoring humanity to our created design. Returning us to our primary responsibilities. Getting humanity back to normal so we can function the way we were meant to function, the way God created us to function. That's God's intention. That is the purpose behind the mission and the narrative that we read throughout Scripture. That is the catalyst for the cross. That is the heart of the gospel. That is the goal of sanctification. And that is what we achieve after we cross over into our heavenly lives. We begin the Bible with humanity as it should be, and we quickly see sickness into the world. We end the Bible with all sin being destroyed and our complete restoration to our original created design. And what does Jesus say in chapter 21? It is done. It begins and ends with us as God intended us to be, and everything in between represents God's mission to restore that which was lost. That, in a nutshell, is the whole story of the Bible. It's what we read last year. So this morning, I want to talk about what that original created design is. I want to give you a picture of what Jesus wants to give us back. I want you to know what you were created to be and what we will become as a result of Jesus overcoming sin through the cross and bringing salvation to, into our lives. I want you to know what you're supposed to be and I want you to look forward to what you will become if you are a believer in Christ. I'm going to be jumping back and forth a little bit. I've got these blue post-it notes in my Bible between <laughs> Genesis chapter 1 and Revelation 21. So if you want to jump back and forth with me too, that's it. So back and forth. The first thing I want you to know is we were meant to be image bearers of God. Genesis 1, 27. So God created man in his own image. The image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. What does it mean to bear the image of God? It means a couple of things. First is that it means we carry within us human versions of the attributes of God. Some of these attributes are more prominent than others, but in nearly every way, we carry the attributes of God within us. God is the creator of the universe, and so we are creators. We find joy in creating things, whether it be working to build a rocking chair out of wood or painting on a canvas a beautiful sunset. We create. 
God is eternal. He has no beginning or end. And even though we have a beginning, the Bible teaches that God created us to live forever. And it's why we spend so many billions of dollars in health care. Every doctor's visit, every prescription, everything we do to take care of our bodies is done with one goal in mind, to put off death as long as possible. God is all-powerful, and so we have a desire to be strong and powerful in our contexts, in our worlds. We want to, to, to be in control of those things. God is all-knowing, so and we have this insatiable thirst to learn and gain as much knowledge as we can about the universe around us. God is omnipresent, and so we have this un- uncontrollable desire to travel and explore and to visit unique places we've never seen. God is just, and we want to see justice championed. God is good, and so so we have a clear concept of what is right and wrong. God is love, and so we love fiercely. And the converse can also be true and can also give us a better understanding of God because if there exists within us a certain trait, that trait must necessarily be a reflection of something greater and perfected and holy within God because we are in God's image. For example, if we have a sense of humor, it stands to reason that within God exists the perfect, holy version of a sense of humor. Just think about it. He won't tell dad jokes. He'll tell Heavenly Father jokes. <laughs> you like that one? I worked on that one all week, Craig. <laughs> Growing up, my mother would uh, wake me for school before sunrise. More often than not, there was no alarm clock or gentle time to wake up for school. No, she just opened the door and flipped on the light. Get up! Of course, it's dark, and if I happen to be maybe awake or am I already or seen her, heard her bumping around, and I'm laying on my back and staring at the ceiling, and she flips that light on, the image of that light is, it was seared into my retinas. And I would go around for the next few hours cockeyed, not being able to see anything, but that, that, that image of that light, you know what I mean? You know what I'm talking about? That image, that impression of the light is who we are. God burned his image into us when we were created, and we can't help but reflect that. It's who we are. Throughout Scripture, we see God guiding us and showing us his image over and over again. He reveals his attributes to us so so we can not only understand him more, but so we can understand ourselves more. He gives us the commandments so we can have a language to describe how his image is worked out in our lives in relation to him and in relation to each other. And then in the Gospels, we see that Jesus takes up human flesh and demonstrates for us what it really looks like to be an image bearer of God. And it's through Jesus that we will one day recapture what it truly means to be image bearers. So in Revelation 21, I'm going to pick up a little bit in uh, that last half of verse 6. It says, to the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and 
he will be my son. To be his son, a declaration that bearing the image of God in a new creation will be complete and whole. We will be inheritors. We will have that heritage to be his children. There are some of you who need to hear this today. You are an image bearer of God. And since you bear the image of God, you are important to the one whose image you bear. Husbands, your wife is an image bearer of God. Wives, your husband is an image bearer of God. Guys, girls are image bearers of God. Guys, the girls are image bearers of God too. Remember, just think about it. Imagine the world and what it would look like if we all treated each other as image bearers of God. Abuse, pornography, racism, hatred, manipulation, war would all vanish overnight. Church, we have a responsibility not only to be image bearers, but to treat each other as image bearers and to hold each other accountable for being image bearers. The second created design is to fellowship with God. We take for granted that God walked with Adam and Eve regularly in the garden, even if the scriptures don't specifically say this. We can infer a few things. The language of Genesis, uh, Genesis chapter 2, we see that God took the man and put him in the garden. And, and then later we see God brought every living creature to Adam. And that God fashioned a, uh, a woman from a rib that he took from Adam and then brought her to man. All this language suggests that God had a hands-on physical presence in the garden with Adam and Eve. And then in chapter 3, we see that Adam and Eve hear the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And what's unique about the scripture, what needs to be pointed out, when we look closely at it, the remarkable thing in that verse is not that God was walking in the garden. The remarkable thing that the text wants us to see was that Adam and Eve hid from him. The term walking is also used over and over again in the Bible to describe people who have a close personal relationship with God. Noah walked with God. Enoch walked with God. To walk after the Lord or to walk in the commandments of the Lord are phrases used to show a spiritual commitment to have a relationship with God in the best possible way. So either way you want to look at it, physical or spiritual, it is clear that Adam and Eve shared a close, personal, intimate relationship with God, untainted by sin, in a way that we can't even imagine. It's this primal desire to have a fellowship with God that drives so much of our world. The world wants to love and to be loved. It's the driving force behind seeking fame, being obsessed with social media, unhealthy relationships, and the growing problem of loneliness. And it also is the driving force behind charity and generosity and worship within a worldly context. We seek and crave the approval, the acceptance of others, even false deities of other religions. Because deep down, 
We want the approval and acceptance of God. So we lavish our efforts on people or things that we create. And what the world is finding out, what the world finds out eventually, what they know, but they may not know, is that simply seeking to love or be loved by the image of God or by things is no substitute for having a relationship with the real thing. So when you dig down to the root cause of loneliness and depression or obsession with fame or the unwillingness to get out of unhealthy relationships or excessive charity and humanitarian efforts. It's really a hole in people's lives that they are trying to fill, but they can't. They want to love God and be loved by God, but settle for human efforts that don't satisfy. The relationship broke in the garden. Adam and Eve hid from God, not because they were ashamed or remorseful, but the Bible says they hid because they were afraid. What did they have to fear? The only thing they could fear from God, that God would be angry or disappointed that God's, God's love for them would be diminished. Though God still loved them, the confidence of that love was gone. And Adam and Eve doubted. Con the consequence for their sin is that they would be banished and no longer have that same intimate relationship with God that they once had. And humanity has been craving that relationship Ever since, the cry on the lips of the world is, does God even care about me? Does God even see me? The dynamic change when sin entered the world, a wall formed in the relationship, not of God's doing, but a wall created by sin. I have two teenagers living in my house. At least I assume they still live in my house. I hardly ever see them. They're usually in their rooms behind a closed door. It's a little bit like being haunted. I look the other way and a cabinet slams and suddenly something's missing from the kitchen. It doesn't matter that there's a barrier between us. That barrier is not a wall, it's a door that can be opened. It doesn't matter whether or not they stay in the room and keep the door closed all the time. Nothing is ever going to change the fact that I love them. Nothing is ever going to change the fact that they're my children. Jesus put a door in the wall of sin between us and God. And it doesn't matter if you don't open it. Your persistence in keeping him out of your life has no bearing on his love for you. Romans 5, 8 says, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, the relationship may be broken, but it was broken by us. And some of you need to hear this. God's love for you has never diminished. 
His love for humanity is so strong that he sent Jesus to die in order to restore that relationship, to fix what we broke. And all we have to do is open the door. Adam and Eve broke the relationship. God spent the entire Old Testament trying to teach us what a relationship with God looks like. Then Jesus personified that relationship by building relationships with those around him. And it's through the saving work of Jesus that the relationship is restored spiritually now and will one day be restored physically. Back in Revelation 21, we'll reread verses 3 and 4. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. You just imagine that kind of relationship with God. Doesn't that just awaken a longing inside of you that you want, you want God to be the one to wipe away the tears? This is the kind of relationship we were meant to have. It's the kind that God wants us to have again because he's already put it in the Bible. kind of relationship we crave. And this relationship in all its fullness, for those who are in Christ, we're going to have it. As Christians, we have that privilege. And we have the opportunity to begin forming that relationship right now. It's a spiritual relationship that fills the longings and the desires of our hearts. It can bring us joy and peace. And one day, when sin is abolished, God will restore a physical, present relationship. He will dwell among us. We were created to love and be loved by God. And Jesus makes it possible the third thing we were created for, the third created design, is to have dominion. To bear God's image is a matter of being. To fellowship with God is a matter of desire. But in this third element of this created design, we have a command. It's God's first command, the initial primary task that he gave us after he created us. It's the mission he assigned per perfect humanity, our untainted, unsinful humanity. Humanity as God designed it, this is the mission he gave us. This is what he told us to do. To have dominion. You find it Genesis chapter 1, read verse 28. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the bird, birds of the heavens and over every living and thing that moves on the earth. God, having just created humanity, sets them on a mission to fill the earth with more image bearers. All right? You see that? 
fill the earth with more image bearers so that the entire earth can, can be under their dominion, so that it can be subdued. That means you can't do it by themselves. So, so the, the be fruitful and multiply and have dominion, they go together, okay? Have, uh, subdue the earth by filling it with more image bearers. Adam and Eve began in a garden designed just for them. That was their place of dominion. And from there, their descendants would spread out over the entire earth and would exercise dominion over the entirety of creation. And it's still the mission. It's what we spend our lives doing, is it not? Subduing. Bringing the world under our control, taming and overseeing all the aspects of our environment. Not just this world. No, humanity is not satisfied with this world. We're doing it all over creation. We have landed and flown a remote-controlled helicopter on another planet. Because we want dominion over everything. That's what we're designed for. But where creation was meant to obey humanity, the curse of sin changed everything. Thorns and thistles grow. By the sweat of a man's brow does he eat. It's work. It's difficult. Filling the earth with more image bearers of God to continue that work of dominion is a painful process. We no longer have the authority to attempt dominion without pain and grief. And I say attempt because it's a losing battle. I once tried to grow a jalapeno plant. I can't grow jalapeno plants. We had it in the pot, and I don't know what happened. I watered it. I, I fertilized it. I did all the things I was supposed to do, and it grew about this, this tall. And I got a jalapeno off of it about this big. <laughs> Just one. Just one. It was about, about an inch, inch and a half long. And you know what I did with it? I chopped that sucker up, and I put it in a bowl of chili. And I ate my jalapeno. Gardening and yard work is not something I'm good at. It doesn't matter how many times I mow my yard, the grass keeps coming back. It doesn't matter how much Roundup I use, I can't seem to get rid of the thistles in my yard. They're everywhere. It looks like a cow pasture. Even if I scraped it all up and went straight back down to the dirt, it wouldn't stay that way. Nothing I try to do is going to be permanent. There will always be problems when we try to exercise dominion. Creation does not obey us. You can drive down the road and see, see these buildings, these barns and these houses off out, off the road, and they're just falling apart, and they're decaying. Creation is reclaiming it. Nothing we do is permanent. It won't last. Creation is out of control. And we can try, but the fact is, we no longer have dominion. Jesus taught the disciples that if we have faith like a mustard seed, we could say to a mountain, move over here, and it'll do it. Jesus thought this lesson was so important, he taught it twice. 
He taught it once in, in, in the context of casting out demons. He taught it a second time in the context of cursing the fig tree. And sometimes we want to look at the, the cursing of the fig tree and we misunderstand it. We, we see you know, that Christ is, we, we think Christ is exercising his divine power when he does this. But the lesson, the lesson that he tells them, if you have faith like a mustard seed, you can say this mountain over here and move and it'll do it, says that what Jesus did to the fig tree was not an exercise of his divine power. It was an exercise of his perfected faith suggesting that within the disciples there at least existed the, the possibility, the potential to have that same kind of faith. If you had this faith, but they didn't. They have the potential for it. But because of sin, they no longer have dominion. We were meant to have that kind of dominion over creation. Can you imagine one day when our faith is perfected in the new creation, okay? Not in this creation. This creation's broken. But when all things are created new, behold, I have made all things new. And we are restored. And God gives us back that mission of dominion. Can you imagine having that kind of dominion over creation? Can you imagine being able to speak to God's creation and creation obeying us? I could say to my yard, be mowed. And the heads of each blade of grass would just fall right over. Some of you need to hear this today. You were created to move mountains. You were created to have dominion and to subdue creation. The curse of sin is what keeps this away from us, but Jesus overcame the curse of sin. We still have to fight it each and every day, but in the believer lies the power to move mountains. And you may never see a physical mountain move. You may never command your yard to mow itself, but through faith, Jesus will see you through those spiritual mountains that you have in your life today. It'll never be easy. It'll be through pain and grief and the sweat of our brows. But Jesus died so that you could overcome whatever it is you're going through. Whatever you brought with you here today, the power of the cross of Jesus can see you through to the other side. Dominion and authority is yours through the blood of Jesus to overcome family struggles, anger, addictions, depression, apathy, discouragement, fear, anxiety, whatever your mountain is. Jesus died so you could overcome it. John 16, chapter, uh, verse 16, chapter 33, verse 33. Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. This is our heritage, according to Revelation 21. 
This is a sermon about hope and expectation. The whole story of the Bible is about God restoring humanity back to its created design, restoring us to truly be image bearers of God as we were meant to be, restoring us to an intimate and personal eternal fellowship with God, and restoring us to our authority and dominion over God's creation as we were assigned. The narrative of Scripture, the plot from the moment uh, of the fall until the moment of restoration is complete, is about God's mission to bring about that restoration. We are saved from sin. We are saved to restoration. Israel was meant to be a light to the nations, to point them to the one true God. I'm just going to give you a quick sky view of what this looks like. They were to give birth to the Savior and through the Savior bring hope to the world. That's who Israel was. They didn't fail that purpose. They succeeded because Jesus came first to the Jews. And the Bible records that thousands, thousands of Jews came to believe. And through the work of 12 Jewish men, the gospel spread throughout the entire world. The narrative work of God's restoration continues through the church as we still strive to bring the gospel to those who need it or haven't heard it. The mission of restoration is complete in Revelation 21. When Jesus says it is done, look at verse 6. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning. And this is not a declaration, Alpha and Omega. It's not a declaration of God's eternality. He doesn't have a beginning. He doesn't have an end. In the context of this verse, he's saying it is done. I started it, and now I've finished it. I began the process of bringing you back. And I've seen it through to the end. And now it is done. Have you ever felt like you were meant for more than this life can provide? Have you ever felt like you had the potential to do something great if only your life circumstances? If only your life circumstances around you would give you the chance? Have you ever felt stuck? Feeling like this was never how life was meant to be? That's because you are meant for more. Life was meant to turn out a different way. You were designed for something great. You were designed to be an image bearer of God. You were designed to be in an intimate relationship with God. You were designed to be a caretaker of God's creation and an overcomer of the world. You know it's true because those of you who have never considered these things, those of you who have never thought about it, who have never heard any of this before, you feel something stirring within you because something is trying to waken up. It's your created design buried beneath layers and layers and layers of sin. And it's trying to break through. 
Jesus wants to restore you to what you were meant to be. Recovery from the sickness of sin takes a lifetime. It'll be hard work. There will be ups and downs, moments of health and moments of clarity and moments of relapse and moments of regret. But you can experience the cure, the freedom from sin. You can begin the journey of understanding God's created design for your life, and you can do that now. It starts with Jesus. Jesus died to bridge the gap between you and God. Jesus died to put a door in the wall. His death was the climax of God's story of bringing you salvation and restoration. Salvation from the consequences of sin and restoration to what you were meant to be. Through Jesus, you can be set free to become what God created you to become. And if you would simply accept the gift, then you can begin that journey today. And maybe there are some of you here who are already saved, but you still know that you're not doing what God created you to do. You've been doing what the world expects of you instead. You want more out of life because deep down you know God has designed you for something else. God has placed a calling on your life that you've been ignoring and it's making you miserable. If you want to continue to be miserable, by all means, keep ignoring God. But if you want to experience what it means to have the joy and freedom that can only come from being in the center of God's will and pursuing what God has created you to do, then give in and let God take over. This is the whole story. Like Paul Harvey used to say, and that's the rest of the story. Lost in the beginning, rescued and restored. God's plan to rescue and restore us unfolds throughout. And how do we know the story is that this is it? I've been asked before how we know the Bible is done. How do we know more scripture won't be written? We know, we know because the story comes to a close. It's done. The story of restoration is complete at the end of Revelation. There is no more of this story to tell. Who knows what story God may write for us in the new creation. God didn't tell us that story. He told us this story and the story comes to an end here in Revelation. And you can be a part of this restoration story today. You can be a part of God's restoration story. And now I want to end by reading the final verses of Scripture. So once again, I'm going to ask you to stand. Revelation chapter 22. And while I'm reading this, our musicians can come on up. Beginning with verse 17. Revelation 22, beginning with verse 17. The Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. 
I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for loving us. For loving us enough to want to fix us. To rid us of the disease, God. And to bring us back under your wing as we were meant to be. And God, we look forward to that day when our restoration can be complete. When we can dwell in your presence. When we can return to our created design. And celebrate a life without the curse. And God, I pray that if there's anyone here who needs to be set free from the curse of sin, who needs to begin their journey of being restored through Christ, that they would take those first steps here today. And God, that you would inspire anybody that maybe feel led called by you to do something great, to do something specifically that they've been designed to do. I pray that you give them the courage to be obedient. Lord, we thank you for all that you do. We thank you for your story. In the name I pray.